Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Good morning, everybody. My name is Bob O'Bannon, one of the pastors on staff here at New Life. You can open your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 4 through 10 today. When I was, uh, when I was a kid, I went through this uh, kind of very brief but strange time when I became kind of overwhelmed with a fear that my parents were going to leave me. Um, I remember being out in the neighborhood playing basketball with my friends and just being convinced that when I came home on one of those days that I'd find all the furniture cleared out of the house, the garage empty, and the whole family gone forever. And uh, I kind of laugh as I tell that story now because it's really kind of silly. Um, My parents were good parents, loving parents. They provided a very stable home for me. There was really no reason at all for me to have that fear. I don't know why I had that fear for a short, short time. But I did, a fear that my parents would leave me. Now, that might make us think of a fear that a lot of Christians have and that maybe even you have, which is the fear that perhaps your God will leave you. The fear that God would decide someday that he doesn't want to be your father anymore. The fear that because of some insufficiency or inadequacy or sin that you've committed, that God would decide to kick you out of the family, that he would take that promise of forgiveness that you received when you became a Christian, and he would revoke it and reverse it and then place you back under his condemnation and wrath. Many of us, as Christians, who have that fear. The question I want to ask today is that, is that even possible? There are some Christians who think that it is. A very famous Christian who believed that that is possible was John Wesley from many years ago. Um, But there are many other Christians who think that that's not possible. And I happen to be one of them. I don't think that's possible. Um, But those who do think it's possible would perhaps point to the passage that we're going to look at today as exhibit A in their argument. Hebrews chapter Six, And that's what we're going to look at this morning as we continue to work our way through the Bible. One sermon per Bible book. The sermon series is called Route 66. And today we get to the book of Hebrews. So to share a little information about Hebrews, the author of this book is unknown to us. Um, I might add that this means that we have actually finished the letters of Paul. We've been looking at Paul for the last several weeks. There are some who actually think Paul is the author to the letter to the Hebrews, and that's possible, I suppose, but scholarship very divided. We don't know. Um, Date that this book was written, somewhere between 60 and 69 AD, and the themes would include the supremacy of Christ, particularly in comparison to what we've read in the Old Testament, Uh, Several chapters devoted to Jesus as our faithful high priest, along with many exhortations in the book of Hebrews to God's people to persevere and endure. And the reason why those exhortations occur is because 
the book of Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish Christians. They were Jews, they converted to Christ, but they've been undergoing a certain amount of persecution and hardship, and many of them were beginning to question whether they wanted to be Christians any longer. And some of them were thinking about returning to Judaism and renouncing their faith in Christ. And so the book of Hebrews gives these many exhortations to persevere. And that's kind of what's in mind here in this passage in chapter 6. Now I know throughout Ruth 66 I have had the liberty to choose whatever passage I have wanted in each of the books that we have covered. Uh, but let it not be said that I've always chosen the easy passages because uh, this one this morning is a difficult one one um, around which there is much disagreement, but we'll look to God's Spirit to help us to make some sense of these verses now. So, I'm going to read Hebrews 6, 4 through 10. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. Holy Spirit of the living God, please come and give light to our eyes. Give us understanding and illumination, Lord, that we might know what you have for us in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, <clears throat> so we're going to look at this passage here from three perspectives. I want to show you uh, a spiritual experience that comes out of this. And then secondly, there's an urgent warning. Lastly, there is a blessed assurance. So the first thing is this spiritual experience. Now before I get into this, let me just very briefly make the case that a Christian actually cannot lose his or her salvation. I'm, I'm convinced of that, and um, I want to show you why I think that is true. Reasons why I believe salvation cannot be lost. First of all, is there are a number of biblical texts that would seem very clearly to indicate that a Christian cannot lose salvation. So, for instance, 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. A promise that Jesus will sustain us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24 says this, May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. He will surely sustain you to the end. Just two quick examples. We could go on and on um, showing many verses that claim 
that God is faithful and that we cannot lose our salvation. But an, another reason why I would make this case is because of God's character. Because God is one who makes certain promises. He is faithful to his word. He cannot lie. To suggest that a Christian could lose his salvation would be to suggest that God would go back on a promise. That he would tell you that you have forgiveness of sins and eternal life, but then reverse that because of some sin in your life. That just seems very out of character uh, from what we know to be true of God, his attributes, and his nature as revealed in his word. But a last thing I would say is that our own depravity, <laughs> might sound kind of counterintuitive, but I think our own depravity suggests we can't lose our salvation because of this. John MacArthur said it this way, if you could lose your salvation, you would. If it was possible to lose our salvation, if maintaining our salvation depended on something in us because of our depravity, we would certainly lose it, which means that there has to be something else that is sustaining us, and that is the grace of God and his faithfulness to us. So that's a very brief overview of why I would say that a Christian cannot lose his or her salvation. But nonetheless, we get here to Hebrews 6, and this passage would seem to present a problem for us, at least some difficulty and some challenges because if you look at verse 6 in particular, it talks about those who fall away. To fall away would suggest the losing of one's salvation. And in fact, he even goes on to say that those who fall away could be in a position where they could not be restored to repentance. Now that's pretty serious and significant language. So what do we do with this? What does this mean? Does this mean that a Christian can lose salvation? Let's, I, I went through that little case for not losing salvation, so you'll kind of keep that in mind. We always have to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So yes, this is a difficult passage, but these earlier passages that I just read to you need to inform our understanding here of Hebrews chapter 6. So it would seem that if this text, Hebrews 6, is referring to Christians, to true believing Christians, it would seem that this is saying that salvation can be lost. I, I don't see any way around that. But what if this passage is not actually referring to genuine Christians? What if this is not referring to people who are truly saved? Perhaps this passage is referring to those who have simply had a spiritual experience. Now, many of us kind of uh, assess our spiritual condition based on our experience and how we feel and what has happened to our emotions on certain occasions. And so it could be that this passage is talking about people who have merely had some kind of a spiritual experience but are not truly saved. So let me show you how I think that is the case. <clears throat> if you look at verse 4, it says, it's impossible to restore again to repentance those who have, okay, we have the first description here of this group. They have once been enlightened They've been enlightened. Is it possible to be enlightened but not be truly saved? I think absolutely yes. And in fact, John chapter 1 says that Jesus came into the world as the true light who enlightens everyone. Not just those who are Christians, but everyone. Everybody has been enlightened to some degree by the coming of Jesus into our world and by the proclamation of the gospel. Everybody benefits from that in some way, even if it's not in a saving way. That's what John chapter 1 indicates. That could very well be the case 
here, merely enlightened. Let's go on. Verse 4. Not only have they been enlightened, but they have also tasted the heavenly gift. Now, is it possible to taste the heavenly gift and not be saved? Well, this could refer to the taking of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, in which case there would be a literal tasting. Certainly it's possible for people to take communion and not be saved. But if we look in other places too, like John, in uh, the book of John, Jesus talks about those who feed on the bread of life. Those are the ones who will live. Feeding on the bread of life is a little different than merely tasting. This seems to suggest there's some recognition of the goodness of the gospel, but it's only touched the person's lips and hasn't been consumed and ingested. Verse 4 goes on to describe another characteristic here. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. Is it possible that a person could share in the Holy Spirit and not be saved? I mean, this might seem impossible, except that um, we know in chapter 2, verse 4 of Hebrews, it talks about the Holy Spirit doing signs and wonders. And there's a, a word there that is used in chapter 2, verse 4, that is the same word used for uh, the powers of the age to come in verse 5. So there's a link here to um, the signs and wonders and miraculous deeds that the Holy Spirit did, particularly in the first century. Now, it certainly would have been possible for people in the church then to witness these things as they participated in the covenant community, to behold signs and wonders, and in that sense, share in the Holy Spirit, but not necessarily to be born again by the Holy Spirit. Um, Acts chapter 8, there's an example of this, a guy named Simon, and Simon, it says, believed and was baptized even, and he witnessed the Holy Spirit doing great works. And yet he wanted to offer up his money to buy that. Peter recognized there's something not right about this guy and assessed him as not being saved. Simon, Acts chapter 8, partook in some way, in a superficial way, in the work of the Spirit, but not saved. Lastly, verse 5 talks about having tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Can you taste the goodness of God's word and not be saved? I think absolutely. You can come into a church, you can turn on the TV, you can get on a podcast and hear a sermon that you find interesting and compelling and engaging, but it doesn't mean that you're saved. There's an example of this in the Gospels as well. Herod, the text tells us that Herod loved to hear John the Baptist preach, but when John the Baptist meddled a little too much in Herod's life, Herod decided to have his head cut off because he didn't want to hear God's word any longer. And yet he had a certain interest and enjoyment in listening to God's word. So, I think these verses, 4 through 6, are describing people who have had a spiritual experience but not necessarily saved. We might also notice certain words that are not mentioned here in this description. There's nothing said here about regeneration or um, being born again by the Spirit, or the people having genuine faith, or the people being justified before God, or the people being elect from before the foundation of the world, or adopted into the God's family. None of that language is used here. The language just seems to be external, superficial, outward. So, who are these people? Who 
are being described here. And I'll just quote Richard Phillips here, who says it pretty clearly. I think this passage describes professors of faith who are within the church community, who experience the benefits of God's blessing in the church without ever personally committing themselves to faith in Christ. I think what's really important to understanding this passage properly <clears throat> is to not read it in a very individualistic way, as if can I as an individual isolated from the community of faith, can I lose my salvation? The context here is within the covenant community. It seems what we're talking about is people who have made some kind of commitment, have had some involvement in the church, but have fallen away from that and renounced their faith in Christ. And we'll talk more about that in a second. So, what this passage would seem to suggest, friends, is that it, it, is, it is possible to have a spiritual experience that might have been very profound and meaningful to you, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're saved. It's possible to come into a church and be moved by the music and not be saved. It's possible to find sermons interesting and compelling and not be saved. It's possible to be blessed by the fellowship of a church community. You have many friends in the church and not be saved. It's possible to be baptized, to take the Lord's Supper, to be a member of a church and not be saved. All these things are possibilities presented to us. A spiritual experience is not the same as saving faith. So, the passage now goes on to give a very urgent warning. Now, remember what I said at the beginning, that this passage is written to Jewish Christians who were tempted with renouncing faith and going back to Judaism. And so, the writer's intent here in this passage is to give a very urgent warning. I think what the writer wants to do is shake you up a little bit. He wants to make the alarm bells go off in your heart and mind and soul. He wants to get your attention, and that's why he uses pretty sobering direct language in these verses, very much like what we're hearing a lot in our culture in this particular time regarding the coronavirus, where we're told all of the precautions that we need to take. We're hearing very urgent warnings that if we don't follow these directions, we could have a resurgence, things could get worse, people could die. It's a serious situation that we're hearing, and the reason we're hearing those directions is because our attention is wanted. And so the writer here has the same kind of intent in mind, giving this urgent warning. And so there's two phrases here that have a certain urgency about them, and these are the phrases that cause the most difficulty, I think, for people as they try to interpret this passage. And so we're going to look at these and, and see if we can make some sense of them. First of all, there's this idea of this impossibility of restoring, <coughs> of restoring to repentance. Verse 4. Actually, it's kind of through verses 4 and 6. 4 through 6. It is impossible, it says, to restore again to repentance those who have been enlightened, tasted, shared, have tasted the goodness of the word of God, etc. Verse 6. If they then fall away. So, in other words, the writer seems to be saying that for a person who has experienced the blessings of membership in the covenant community, have, has experienced the blessing of the gospel, hearing it proclaimed, and that person falls away, comes to the point where that person denies or rejects Christ, that 
that person cannot then be restored to repentance. Now that's a troubling thing to hear, isn't it? And so what, what does the writer mean here? I think what he is talking about is something that is called apostasy. That's the theological word here, apostasy. He's talking about people who have committed apostasy. William Lane defines apostasy this way. It consists in a deliberate, planned, intelligent decision to renounce publicly association with Jesus Christ. That's apostasy. I think that's what the writer means by falling away. Uh, John Owen describes it this way, apostasy. It's a voluntary, resolved renunciation of the faith which cannot be done without bringing the highest reproach and contempt on the person of Christ himself. Something very important to understand about apostasy is that it can only be committed by professed Christians. Atheist people outside the church, people who have never had any involvement in the covenant community, can't commit apostasy. Apostasy is committed by those who once said that they were Christians and proclaimed it and then reversed that and renounced the Savior they once claimed to believe in. So the question here, though, is why would it then be impossible to restore them to repentance? Now, you, you shouldn't think that maybe I can't repent. If you have a desire to repent of a sin, you should do it. Um, if you ever turn to God for forgiveness and turn away from your sin, he will receive that. And we have examples in Scripture of that. David, who committed adultery and repented, and Peter, who denied Christ and repented. So um, if you have a desire to repent, you should act on that. But I think this passage is talking about something a little different. Why would repentance be impossible in the case of apostasy? And I think that maybe there's two answers to this, and I think they can maybe go together. One would be this, that in the act of apostasy, it would suggest that the heart is so hardened in that act that it renders that heart incapable of turning back to God. That all interest in the gospel completely dries up if the person does what is described here by John Owen, voluntary resolution to renounce the faith and to bring the highest reproach and contempt upon Jesus Christ. That kind of an attitude, that kind of open rejection of Jesus Christ does something to a person. A person doesn't do that and walk away unaffected. That changes the heart and what the writer might have in mind here, in mind here is that it changes the heart so much that there's no interest whatsoever in the gospel, forgiveness, or Jesus Christ. Another way to look at this, I think, is also this, that in this situation where someone has committed apostasy, <clears throat> there is then no other condition in which repentance could be acceptable. That is, if you reject Jesus as Savior, whatever kind of repentance then that you try to engage in is totally ineffective. Repentance is not just turning away from your evil deeds and shaping yourself up morally and promising you're not going to do bad things again. That's just half of it. Repentance is turning away from your sin and then turning toward Jesus for forgiveness. Biblical repentance involves both. 
But if you've already rejected Christ and now you're trying to repent, there's no one to turn to for forgiveness. And it's not adequate biblical repentance. And I think what helps make this case is if you look in the middle of verse 6. If they then fall away, since, there's that word since, the reason that it's impossible to restore them is because as they fall away, they're crucifying the Son of God to their own harm. That is, they've rejected Christ. And so they have nobody to turn to for forgiveness, and therefore the repentance is not proper biblical repentance. I think this idea might be captured in chapter 10, where the writer is saying something very similar and talking about the possibility of apostasy. And he says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus' sacrifice for sins is is rendered ineffective. It just means that if you reject Jesus, there's no one else to turn to for forgiveness. There is no other sacrifice for sins available except the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And if you're going to put him aside, renounce him, there's no possibility of true repentance. So that's the first kind of difficult phrase, impossible to restore to repentance. The second difficult phrase is the one that I just mentioned. It's there in verse 6. If they then fall away, since they are then crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So what, what does this mean? Crucifying the Son of God again. And I think what the writer has in mind here is that if Again, considering the context of involvement in the covenant community, a public profession of faith, someone has come forth saying that they're a Christian, has been trying to live like a Christian, and then decides to renounce Jesus, that that is just the same as if that person were to take up a hammer and nail and pound that nail into Jesus' hands and feet on the cross once again. To renounce Christ in that situation is just like crucifying him all over again. That's how serious this is. John Stott says apostasy is basically when you shift your alliance from the crucified to the crucifiers. This is a depiction of people who no longer trust Jesus but want to kill Jesus. That's the state of the heart of these people committing this kind of apostasy. It's very serious. That's why this is a very urgent warning. John Owen says it like this. The sin of those who forsake Christ and the gospel after they are convinced of its truth is far greater than the sin of those who crucified him physically 2,000 years ago. The sin is greater because they were not ignorant of what they were doing. They've been blessed. They've heard the gospel promises. They know intellectually the goodness of the gospel and men in their hearts are turning against it. And there's nothing more serious than that. Well, the writer goes on here in verses 7 and 8 and he gives this little illustration which I think strengthens this point that I'm making that these people are not Christians. Not true Christians. They're professing to be Christians but they're not true Christians. Verses 7 and 8, he gives this illustration of the land. He talks about two kinds of, of land. And he talks about rain that is coming. Verse 7, land that has drunk the rain. So there's rain. I think rain is symbolic of gospel blessings that people would receive in the covenant community. Well, that l- rain has fallen on two different kinds of land. On one land, verse 7, that's the good land, 
a crop is produced. But in verse 8, the rain has fallen on another kind of land, and it bears thorns and thistles. So this might bring to mind, actually, the parable of the sower. Remember the seed going forth and falling on different kinds of soil, and only one of those is good soil. But on the other uh, parts of the land, the, the seed is strangled, the seed is, seed is choked. That might be what the writer has in mind here. But what he seems to be saying here is that the same gospel blessings are falling on these two kinds of land. One land produces fruit. Those are the true Christians. The other land produces only thorns and thistles. These are those who might have professed to be Christians but are not because there's no fruit. But notice that he's not saying that the bad land here in verse 8 used to be fruitful. It's not like they used to bear a crop and then somehow they went bad and now they only bear thorns and thistles. No, there's one land, the good soil, that bears fruit, and the other land, the false professors, who bear thorns and thistles. And then we get this very serious description. They are worthless and near to being cursed, and their end is to be burned. So, very urgent warning. So let me say a couple of things here by way of application. First of all, I want to make sure that you understand that this passage, because it's talking about apostasy, is not talking about a situation where you're simply, for instance, struggling with a sin in your life. To struggle with a besetting sin, week after week, month after month, year after year, struggling with sin is not apostasy. This is not talking about um, missing church for a few Sundays. Missing church for a while is not apostasy. Um, having some intellectual and philosophical doubts about the Christian faith and about the Bible is not apostasy. Struggling with depression, lacking joy, finding it difficult to really rejoice as you're overwhelmed by the circumstances of your life is not apostasy. The writer has in mind here, again, looking at these definitions, a very intentional, deliberate renunciation of Jesus Christ. At the same time, just to keep consistent with the warning that's being offered here, if you find yourself right now in your spiritual life where you feel like your heart is getting increasingly hardened toward the gospel, you feel yourself drifting further and further away, your interest in spiritual things is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. This warning could be for you. This warning could be for you. So it's an urgent warning. It's made, it's, it's written to, to alarm us for good reason. But the writer goes on and gives us, finally, this blessed assurance. What a blessed assurance this is. Notice how the tone changes in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, he says, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. In your case, we think salvation is true and real for you. That's what the writer is saying. The whole tenor, the whole intent of the book of Hebrews actually is to encourage the readers. Even though we've picked up kind of an alarming passage here, the overall intent of the book is to bring encouragement to you and to me who are reading it today. And I skipped down, I didn't read this earlier, but skip down to verses 18 and 19. Look at the very end of 18. 
um, we who have fled for refuge to God might have, look, strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. The writer wants to give you an anchor. The writer wants to assure you, wants to give you security that you who are a Christian are anchored in Jesus. We even have this interesting shift in pronouns. If you'll notice, like in verses 4 through 6, the pronouns are all third person. That is, it's talking about they, those, them. It's third person. But then you get to verse 9, and it changes. Now it's second person. In your case, we are sure of better things. It's like the writer acknowledges that apostasy is a very real possibility, yes, but in your case, the people to whom he is writing, I have confidence of better things. I have confidence that Jesus is your anchor. I have confidence that Jesus is your forerunner, the forerunner on your behalf, the high priest who has gone before you in the order of Melchizedek, a high priest for you forever. So that seems to be the final intent. This is what the writer wants the readers to be, encouraged that their anchor is in Jesus. Now, our, our assurance of these things always kind of goes up and down, and it's very common for Christians to fall into these fears that maybe God is going to leave me and kick me out of the family. It's not unusual. If that's some thought that you've had, you shouldn't think that you're weird or strange. It's very common. But here's the good news, friends, is that the, 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 the security and the strength and the certainty of your salvation is not dependent on the strength of your internal assurance. Your salvation is dependent upon the strength of the anchor of your salvation, the object of your faith. Uh, as an example of this, I went to the FAA, Federal Aviation Administration website, and did a little research and found out that Every single day in the United States of America, there are 44,000 flights. And that at the top, most busy kind of flying time in every day, there are 5,000 planes in the air at once in the United States of America. And yet, the last time a plane has crashed in the United States was 11 years ago. 11 straight years no plane crashes with all those thousands and thousands of planes in the air every single day. And yet, you know what? When I get on a plane to fly, my palms still get sweaty. I still lack some assurance that that plane is going to get me to my destination. And in fact, it's kind of silly, and I'm kind of embarrassed to admit it. But it's true, but thankfully... The ability of that plane to get me to my destination doesn't depend on my assurance that that's going to happen. It depends on the plane itself and its integrity as my anchor. How much more, friends, is this true of Jesus Christ for you, who is sufficient for you, who is your high priest forever, who intercedes for you constantly? How much more certain is it that he will get you to your destination. That's the bottom line point that this writer wants to bring to you, Christian, is, is a blessed assurance. So to just review here, it, it is possible, yes, it, it is possible to have a spiritual experience but not to possess saving 
faith in Christ. That's true. And the Bible does give urgent warnings about the possibility of apostasy for those who have professed faith. But, brothers and sisters at New Life, I am sure of better things for you. Whose faith may be small, whose faith may be shaky, but who find in Jesus an anchor who is sufficient for your soul. There is assurance here. Let us take it. Let us rejoice in it and continue to persevere until the end. God, thank you, Lord, that you speak to us directly in your word. Father, for those who are um, maybe drifting from you, would you, Father, please bring them back. For those with sensitive consciences who might be alarmed by this passage, give them great assurance. And Lord, may we all find in you an adequate anchor for our souls. In Jesus' name we pray.